1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. I typically, when we begin a new book, give you some introductory material. I tried to work the introductory material in because Paul does that here. So it could be a little bit different in that regard tonight. Um, also, here in a moment, we're going to show you a quick video. The Bible software that I use that you have access to, by the way, Logos Bible software, as I was working through this and studying, they all of a sudden popped up this video. And I thought, well, this is very nice to give you some cultural context to the town of Corinth. So pretty, pretty good little video. So I'm going to show you that here in just a moment. But let's read together first. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse number 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your blessing upon this time. We've read your word, and now we prepare our hearts for the preaching of your word. May we receive it and use it in a way that would glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 10 is a good kickoff place for a study in the book of 1 Corinthians. He says here, Brethren, I beseech you that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. So in this letter to the church in Corinth, Paul is writing to address some issues. And he's going to get into several other things, but initially he deals with this lack of unity in the church, these divisions. And we'll get into in a couple of weeks what those divisions were specifically, but basically they were kind of playing this one-upsmanship game of, well, I was baptized by Paul, and you were only baptized by Apollos, or something along those lines. And he said, this should not characterize the church of Christ. This should not be what is seen about us. So he's writing to address that. And then several other things that we're going to have to get into during these letters that aren't quite as G-rated, but he still has to write and address these things. But before he does... He writes to them here, and I want to speak to you tonight on the topic of being called to be saints. So he reminds them up front, hey, yes, we're going to deal with divisions. Yes, we're going to deal with sexual immorality. Yes, we're going to deal with use and misuse of giftings. But before I get into any of that, I want you to re remember that you've been called as God's saints. You've been called to be saints. So we begin first with our heading of the will of God from verses 1 through 3. Paul talks about this calling being according to the will of God. And the first calling that he brings out in verse number one is that he was called to be an apostle. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Now, an apostle is a sent one or a special messenger commissioned by Jesus Christ for a particular role. Acts chapter one, and we're not going to go there tonight, but if you want to take this note, Verses 15 through 26 will list for you the other apostles. It will even show you how that they were set in place as apostles, some of them. And you will find there what we would call the rules of apostleship. How would somebody say you are an apostle or you are not an apostle? Paul attributes his calling, a little different than you'll read about it in Acts chapter number 1, by saying here, I recognize as Paul that this is according to the will of God. And certainly, I believe Peter recognized his calling as according to the will of God as well. And they all would. In fact, as they put a new apostle in the place of Judas, who was set up by Christ but then hung himself, they prayed that way. They said, God, it's not for us to set up or to put down an apostle, but we need to fill this space, we believe. So here's how we're going to do it. And we're asking you to bless this. So you can go and read about that there. But I want to focus not so much on apostleship here, 
as this idea of calling. Because we're going to see this word multiple times here, just in the first few verses. He, he says, I am called by the will of God. And the called that he uses here is the word kletos in the Greek. It's K-L-E-T-O-S to, to spell it out for us in an English way. But this term for called denotes a summoning. It's a summoning by God upon a human to fill a specific role. And the summons was such that refusal would not be an option for that human. Now we can think of other examples in the Bible of that being the case. Now I'm not saying that the same word was used there, but I just want to give you illustration. Lazarus was dead and Jesus went to Lazarus and he said, come forth. And what did Lazarus do? He got up from the dead. Jonah was told, go to Nineveh. And Jonah said, I'm not going to go to Nineveh. I'm going to go to Tarshish. And where did Jonah end up going? He went to Nineveh. Now he went in a way differently than he could have had he obeyed initially. But I want to give you those biblical illustrations to put you in the, in the vein of the mindset that Paul is in here when he says, I'm called to be an apostle. Kletos. I've been summoned and I've been summoned in such a way that there is no refusal. That this wouldn't be an option. Now, I want to go to Acts 9 and deal specifically with Paul's calling, which allowed this experience, allowed him to write it this way. And, and I don't want you just to think, well, you're pushing this doctrine upon us simply based upon the, the defining of a Greek word. And we can do it that way because that's exactly how it is in the scriptures. But even if you didn't have a Greek-English dictionary, weren't able to do the transliteration here, you could still read your Bible and understand Paul's calling from Acts 9 and then apply that to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he says, I was called in this way to God. So let's read together. And I want you to notice four things in Acts chapter number 9 here. First, we'll see in the first nine verses that Saul is called. Then in verse 10 through 16, I want you to notice that this calling is humanly confirmed through Ananias. So it wasn't just one guy saying this and everybody else just has to take him at his word on it. That can be problematic, right? Like that'd be like me saying, the Lord laid it upon my heart for all of you to buy me an ice cream sundae after church today. And you have to do it because God said it. He may not have said it to you, but he said it to me. And what are you going to say? That this is not true? See, that's problematic. And Paul doesn't do that here. This happens and it's recorded. And then it happens in regards to Ananias. And it is affirmed by him as, as a separate human. Then in verses 17, 18, and 19, it is divinely affirmed by the Holy Spirit. And then in verses 20 through 22, it is affirmed through the personal life of Paul changing. So all those things are great measures when we get into dealing with like our call to salvation. Is this person saved or aren't they? When we get to dealing with regenerate church membership. Is this person saved? Should they be a part of our fellowship here, this gathering to worship Christ at this? Well, we have affirmations of whether they are saved or whether they are not. This is great when we get into dealing with a personal calling. Does God want me to do this or doesn't he want me to do this? A very hard thing to do. Uh, Liz and Stephen have decided God wants them to go on the mission field, specifically to New Zealand. That's not, a hard, that's not an easy thing to decipher, is it? You, you have to decide, is this truly what the Lord wants me to do before I move? I was going to say halfway around the world, but that's all the way around the world, isn't it? It's the other side. Uh, so if you just dug a hole through the middle, you'd get there. Maybe. Oh, China. That's, yeah, I don't want to get you to China. All right, so let's notice this. So first nine... First nine verses are his calling. And stay with me here. I know you say that's a lot of reading, but it's a wonderful story. So he's, he saw his, his biblical name, his saved name was Paul. But his Jewish name, his Hebrew name was Saul of Tarsus. So here's this guy prior to conversion. Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest and desired him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. 
And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him unto Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did he eat or drink. So this is Saul's conversion. He's on the road to Damascus to persecute the new church. Jesus stops him in his tracks, knocks him off his horse, and says, Why are you persecuting me? And as Saul begins to ask these questions, Jesus basically just shuts him up by saying, It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. It's going to be hard for you to go against what's going to happen here. All right, what would you have me to do? And he's calling him Lord all along this way. And he says, well, go to Damascus and you'll find out what it is that I would have you to do. So this is Saul's calling. Now, if you were just told that story, you'd have to choose whether you wanted to believe it or not. But next we run into a guy named Ananias. Now, I want you to know Ananias was a part of the early church. Paul called it this way, the way. Ananias was a part of that way whom Paul was sent to go persecute and had authority from the high priest, which would be next to king's authority, right? To go and just persecute these people to stop this thing from happening. They were sick of these people speaking in the name of Jesus Christ. So let's go and stop it. So if you're Ananias, you know about Saul, and he comes to you and he says, oh, by the way, I've been saved. Well, you're, oh, you're highly skeptical. So let's read how this goes for him. Verse 10, And there was a certain disciple of Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in, putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And he here hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call upon thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So not only do we have Paul's experience in this calling, but now we have this backup from Ananias, a totally different person who had a totally separate vision and was told, Although you're afraid of him, embrace him because he is special to me, God says. Next, we see as that happens, the Holy Spirit comes into the play. Not that he hasn't been all along. Verse 17, Ananias went his way, entered into a house, and putting his hands on him, Paul, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith, and arose and was baptized. And when he received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. So now we see the Holy Spirit outwardly among these humans affirming this calling. I do want to give you something here. And we have to be very careful in the first 11 chapters of the book of Acts because it's all very transitional. So we don't always base church practice on the things that we find in the first 11 chapters of Acts. They're, they're good information. This is a, a history book of the early church. But we won't always say it has to be just like this or it's not biblical based off just the book of Acts. Because things seem to begin like this and then get way up here and then settle over here this way throughout the book of Acts. So we would base more so on the letters to the churches that were involved in the book of Acts than that. However, I want you to notice the timeline of the events from 17, 18, and 19 in Paul's conversion. Now, he's already been arrested by God, by Jesus. He goes to wait, and he's praying here. Ananias affirms him as a brother in Christ. He calls him Brother Saul. But when, when he comes to him, the thing that happens first is he is filled with the Holy Ghost. And then after that, there becomes this change. So he cannot see, and then he is able to see once he's received the Holy Ghost. And then, and only then, is he baptized. So there would be good proof text for us in believers' baptism. This idea that you're not baptized to receive the Holy Spirit. After you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, then you can be baptized in the immersion of water. It's, a nice, it's nice how it's laid out for us there. And then we see that after that he received his strength, 
and he was, a, he was brought into the company of the disciples there. All right, verses 20 through 22 then, it's not just all religious ritual. This is actually affirmed in a life change in this guy named Saul. Verse 20, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Now, again, this is not a proof text to say, if you've never preached, then you don't have the same conversion story as this guy, Paul. But we're making the point that Paul was not so much called to salvation as he was called to apostleship. But even in the life of an ordinary believer, what should be confessed with our mouths if we say we believe in thine heart? Well, it should be that Jesus is the Son of God. This guy that you killed and who is alive again now, that he is the Son of God. And this is what he preached. Verse 21, But all that had heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on his name, this name in Jerusalem, and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased the more and more, the more in strength, and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. So we have there, you can go back to 1 Corinthians, Saul's calling, his own personal experience, this being confirmed through Ananias, being affirmed by the Holy Spirit, and then being confirmed by Paul's change of life. So with all of that in mind, we go back to this idea of Paul saying, I was called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. What is the will of God? It is God's intent. It is God's purpose. It is God's plan. The Greek word here is thelema, T-H-E-L-E-M-A. And it carries the connotation of that which has already been decided. Anybody already know? You haven't had your dinner yet, but you know what you're going to have when you get there tonight? I believe I'm having sloppy joes. Okay. I thought Aunt Redonna made sloppy joes, and so that was my plan. It had already been decided. In fact, it was out of my hands. You cooked the sloppy joes. And so if I plan to eat tonight, I'm going to have sloppy joes or I'm going to go hungry. Right? That's the way. Yeah, I love sloppy joes. That's the way it works. This is what Paul is saying here when he says, I'm called to be an apostle. So called, I've been summoned for a special task. What is that task? It's apostleship. Now, the apostleship was limited and it wasn't for everybody. But the rest of this is very applicable to us. An apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, through God's intentions, through God's purposes, through God's preordained plans, His will, His purpose, His intent. All of this has already been determined beforehand. We see this illustrated well as Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 5. He says, "...having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will." So God did something ahead of time because it was His will according to, I'm going to say it this way, what He wanted. Paul says it a nicer way than that, according to His good pleasure. But in reality, He did what He wanted to do. Now that can be problematic for you and I. Why? Let me fill out the question for you there. Why can that be problematic for us but not for God? Elaborate. Okay, we're selfish. Be more general than that. Don't be so specific. I mean, you might be selfish, but I'm not. We're sinners. sinners. There we go. Because we are sinners. God is holy. So for holy God, righteous God, just God, is He all of these things? Is He perfect? Yes. Is He all-knowing? Yes. Is He eternal? So for Him to ordain ahead of time, this is what I want to do, and for us to say, well, this is God's will... That's quite all right. In fact, it should be awfully comforting to you and I. This is God's will. What did that look like in the life of Job? Job was a man who was in a relationship with God. He honored God with his living and God blessed him because of that. But even in that scenario, as you find Job early on in that story, his Children are having a feast or a party or something's going on there. It didn't read like it was anything untoward. But what do we find Job doing at the end of that day? He's praying for his kids in case they might have done something they shouldn't have done and sinned against God. This is a righteous man. 
Even in that, God saw fit to allow Satan to tempt Job because God had already realized, according to his will, that Job would have never cursed him and died. And Job did it. Even when the person on earth who was closest to him, his wife, you didn't, you didn't get much closer to that person, and especially the person you've had children with, says to him, Job, this is awful. This should be the end. Just let it go. This God that you serve, he's not, not doing well by you. Even then, Job says, no, he's, he's only ever done me good. He gives and he takes away, but still I'll bless his name. This is his understanding here in the midst of that. This is a man totally submitted to this idea of the will of God. So it is for Paul. Paul admits here, he says, I've been called an apostle of Jesus Christ, not because of anything I've done, but because it's God's will. Paul finds himself in prison, and he says, that's okay, because this is God's will. Finds himself out of prison, that's okay, because it's God's will. He's beaten for the sake of the gospel, that's okay, because this is God's will. He, he definitely has times of blessings. And those are great, because they are God's will. So as he says to the Ephesians, we use that as our illustration, God set up my salvation ahead of time, according to his will. So here it is, this same way, he is submitting to that same knowledge here of his role of being called an apostle according to the will of God. He illustrates that to the extreme in Galatians 1.15 where he says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. Now what is his illustration there? He said, It pleased God to separate me from my mother's womb, meaning to be physically born. Now, put that up against your salvation experience, your calling for some task experience. Who's really in charge? Paul says, it pleased God to separate me from my mother's womb. How much control did any of you have when you were infants in regards to the birthing process? Anybody have any? You know, you kind of knocked on the belly button and said, okay, lady, I'm ready. No, I don't think any of you did this. You weren't aware. You, you were born and you came into life and probably your earliest memories were well after those initial infant years. It was out of your control. And this is what Paul is saying here. This calling that he talks about, this summons by God, was as out of his control as his physical birth. So goes the will of life, or the will of God in the life of modern believers. God has summoned us to a role. He will not accept our refusal. This is according to His good pleasure and it has been established beforehand. We don't think it's accidental that we're in the Bibb Center in White Bluff, though we're a church called Harpeth from Kingston Springs tonight, do we? This, is, this was established beforehand. We just trust the Lord. And should the Bibb Center had said, sorry, we, you can't use it, then, then we'd be somewhere else. And that would be God's will. And should they say it's going to take 10 years instead of a few months to get back into your facility? We'll trust that as God's will. And whatever that is in your life, all of these things are a part of His planning and His ordaining and His working in your life. And Paul begins this letter this way. I'm called an apostle by the will of God. Now, I like to generalize, but don't sit there in your brains and say, well, let me just say it this way. Don't, don't mistake your disobedience as the will of God in your life. Don't mistake your living in sin and taking pleasure in sin for a season as part of the will of God in your life. Up against sin, the will of God for you is holiness. And as a believer, you will be made holy even if today you've been unholy. In fact, it might be that before too long, God stops your ability to choose on this earth by killing you to make you permanently holy in eternity with Him. So we must not ever step past that. Jonah did disobey God and didn't go initially where God told him to go, right? He was going to go somewhere else. But boy, that was just a big mess for him, wasn't it? It's funny how when there's disobedience, you always end up with just the byproducts of that on your life. Jonah had whale vomit all over him. The prodigal son had the mud and the muck and the mire from the hog pen on him 
No, no different for you and I. The scars of our disobedience. So Paul says, I've been called to be an apostle. And he says, I'm riding alongside Sosthenes, our brother. Now, I'm going to assume this is the same person who we find beaten for the gospel in Acts chapter 18. I don't have any other proof than that other than this is a very unique. And the family of believers that he's connected you with are much more important. They should be higher up your priority list than those blood relatives who are not believers. And I know that's hard for us a lot of times because we love our blood kin and we've been around our blood kin. We've got memories with our blood kin. But when it comes right down to it, should things end like they are right now, you're going to spend eternity outside of that blood kin, are you not? Are things supposed to be different now than they're going to be in eternity? No, we should be living things right now as close as we can to what we feel like they would be in eternity or even in the millennial kingdom. So we must be very careful with those types of idols, misconceptions, poor relationships. Paul here says, this is my brother. You don't read much about Paul going home for Christmas, do you? Making sure he got back to Tarsus for Thanksgiving. Now he was busy doing the Lord's work. Well, he says we've been called by the will of God in verse 1. Then in verse number 2, he says we've been called to be saints. Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So Paul addresses his letter to the local church in Corinth. And this is where I want to pause just for a moment and introduce you to this town. All right, Jimmy. Business and Order in Roman Corinth When Paul came to Corinth, he found a city that was enjoying remarkable economic growth. It was a city of opportunity for the merchant, craftsperson, and, something rare indeed in the ancient world, the social climber. Corinth is located on a narrow isthmus between the Aegean and Adriatic Seas. It is well placed to profit from trade between the eastern and western Mediterranean. Ships unloaded on the east side of the isthmus, where their goods were transported over land and then reloaded on the west side. The Emperor Nero attempted to cut a canal across the isthmus in AD 67 to facilitate sea trade, but the project proved too difficult and was abandoned until modern engineering made it possible in the 19th century. Corinth's city center was surrounded by rows of shops, porches, and roofed entrances. These alcoves are all that remain of the series of shops in the downtown area's northwest sector. The Temple of Apollo, visible in the background, reminds visitors that the worship of the traditional Greco-Roman gods surrounded and supported the everyday life of the city. A long row of connected shops also ran along the south side of the city center. The grassy area would have once been the walkway of the long, covered portico, or columned porches, which ran in front of the entire length of shops. Shops also sat on the west end of the city, just below the temple of Hera, the wife of Zeus. Another market area arose to the north of the city, again with rows of shops and open spaces for the sale of wares and foods. Paul likely worked as a tent maker in one of these spaces, or another such space yet to be discovered, finding a place at the better established workshop of Priscilla and Aquila, his fellow Christians and evangelists. When the Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome in 49 CE, Priscilla and Aquila relocated to the promising city of Corinth and set up shop shortly before Paul's arrival there, described in Acts 18 verses 1 to 3. Corinth had its central meat market, called a Macellum, in the northeast quarter of the downtown area. Originally a shrine to Apollo, this structure was converted to a more practical function by the time Paul visited Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 25, when he told his converts to eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, he was likely referring to this well-known space. As Corinth grew, private citizens took on more public works and gained public recognition. When one citizen named Erastus was elected to the office of Edile, the office entrusted with overseeing public buildings and festivals, 
he showed his appreciation by paving an area north of the theater complex. An inscription still visible today provides perpetual recognition for his gift. This may have been the same Erastus mentioned in Romans chapter 16, verse 23, who served as the city's treasurer and who had become part of the Christian congregation in Corinth. The Babius Monument shows the self-promoting and self-congratulatory spirit of Roman Corinth. Gnaeus Babius Philanus was a freedman, a former slave, who rose to the offices of Edile, local priest, and Duovir, one of the city's two chief magistrates. He authorized the construction of this monument to himself as a testimony to his name, success, and benefactions to the city. The monument originally consisted of eight columns arranged in a circle, each bearing an ornate Corinthian capital adornment like this one, altogether supporting a cone-shaped roof. The same spirit of boasting, claiming honor, and calling for recognition would invade the Christian congregations in Corinth. Paul's ministry in Corinth aroused significant opposition from the Jewish community there, which no doubt saw Paul as a competitor for the support of Gentiles sympathetic to the Jewish religion. Acts chapter 18 verses 7 to 8 records that Paul even drew away the leader of the synagogue and started meeting at the house of Titius Justus, a rich Gentile God-fearer. Evidence of a Jewish community in Corinth includes this partial inscription, which translates to gathering place of the Hebrews. This capital, decorated with menorahs and palm branches, once adorned the top of a pillar, probably from the synagogue in Corinth. Opposition to Paul and his new church-building efforts came to a head with the arrival of a new proconsul, Lucius Junius Gallio, governor of Achaia in 51-53 AD. The buildings in the foreground are the remains of the North Basilica, the headquarters of the proconsular governor of Achaia and the place where he would have conducted most of his business. According to Acts chapter 18 verse 12, however, members of the Jewish community brought their accusations against Paul to Gallio at the tribunal, or Bema. Members of Corinth's Jewish community charged Paul with introducing unlawful religious customs, something that would typically fall under the jurisdiction of the secular authority. Upon further examination, Gallio ruled that this was all just an internal Jewish affair in which he would not intervene. Only the foundation of the structure remains. The governor would have heard cases seated in an ornate structure atop this platform. This is another view of the bima from the southwest, showing the ascent to the top of the platform. The suit against Paul was unsuccessful, and he was able to spend a considerable time further in that city, nurturing the congregation that would prove to be his most difficult over time. And I would say it's likely, I think you got one more slide you can click to there. Thanks, Jimmy. That's, that, that last they were talking about there, that's where I would bring Sosthenes into that, according to Acts chapter 18. Interesting. I wish we could see some of that, what it used to look like instead of what it looks like now, but nevertheless. So Paul addresses his letter to this local church in Corinth. The word church in the Greek language means a called out people. It's ekklesia in the Greek, uh, defined as called out people, a gathering of believers, a group of those who trust in Christ. Paul's uses of it here and then further on in 1 Corinthians quantifies this group as those who would gather around the Word. Now that is key. We must never forget what we're talking about when we talk about the church. Not, not so much a church. We would look at a building and say, well, there is a church. And then a lot of things try to carry the title of church, but that is not who Paul is addressing here. Paul is addressing the group of called out ones who are gathering for the purpose of the Word of God. And that is how we define church. I want to use some commentary from Charles Hodge here for clarification. He talks about the word church being used in Scripture as a collective term for the people of God, considered as called out from the world. He says sometimes it means the whole number of God's people, as when it is said, Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it in Ephesians 5.25. Sometimes it means the people of God as a class, as when Paul said, he persecuted the church of God in Galatians 1.13.
Sometimes it means the professing Christians of any one place, as when mention is made of the church in Jerusalem or Antioch or Corinth or Kingston Springs or White Bluff. So any number, however small, of professing Christians collectively considered may be called a church. Hence we hear of the church in the house of Philemon and the church in the house of Aquila and Priscilla in Romans chapter number 16. So Paul specifies here that he is writing to the church, this group of called out ones gathering around the word in this town of Corinth. And then he specifies exactly what he means by church here in verse number two. So he starts with unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, and he gives us three qualifications to them that are sanctified, called to be saints in every place that call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the church are the sanctified, those to whom God is separating to himself in holiness. You're separated from the world unto God through holiness. This is sanctification. C.K. Barrett notes here, it is God's act in sanctifying them. That is, in separating them for himself and not any act of their own that makes these men into the church. This takes place when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. He places us in Christ, Paul writes here. Uh, like Jesus said, the branch and the vine. Um, he is the vine, we are the branches. The branch can do nothing if it's detached from the vine. This is the idea of being placed in Christ. We are in union with Jesus Christ because we are justified by His righteousness. And it is only as justified in His righteousness that we can ever be sanctified, set apart, made holy. It is through His accomplished atonement that we are granted this separation from our sinful world unto Christ's holiness. And William MacDonald writes here and gives us two distinctions. He says, sanctified means set apart to God from the world and describes the position of all who belong in Christ. So we have positional sanctification. And then he says, as to their practical condition, they should set themselves apart day by day in holy living. So there's practical sanctification. Very easy for us to focus on our positional sanctification and let the practical go. That's how men do with their marriage. We're... Uh, you know, we're Mr. Suave when we're trying to get married. But once we get married, the romance goes out the door, the figure goes out the door, the hair falls off of our heads. You know, all of this stuff happens in our lives. And for whatever reason, we stop trying to woo this person that we otherwise would give up everything in the world for if they would just say yes. I was wondering what I was doing wrong. <laughs> there you go. Well, we do God the same way. We're, being, we're positionally sanctified. In fact, it's as good as done. If you drop dead right now, it will be done and you'll be glorified. But for whatever reason, when we come to that knowledge of our positional sanctification, we kind of leave off our practical sanctification. Paul's writing here for both to the Corinthians. He's saying, look, I know you're from Corinth. You, you guys saw that town there. Seaport. They were proud of themselves. They made statues for their accomplishments. That sounds like Americans. Actually, we tear down the statues for our past accomplishments. They had all of these things going. They had a God for this and a God for that. And we don't say it that way anymore. But when you come to realize that they actually are gods, they rule and reign and we wish for their blessings. And he says, but God's called you away from that. All of the immorality that was associated with the false religions you were saved from, the poor culture that you were a part of, God has called you away from that positionally. In Christ's righteousness, you've been made holy. But practically, day to day, you've got to continue pursuing your holiness is what he's going to write about throughout the rest of this letter. Now here, he just addresses their positional sanctification as an encouragement, as a reminder. This is where you are. Don't, don't be over here. God's put you over there. Hodge concludes in his commentary about the sanctification. He says, The church consists of those whose guilt is expiated, who were inwardly holy and who are consecrated to God as his peculiar people. So Paul writes to the church of God at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ. And then he says, those called to be saints. Now, this is Paul's second reference in two verses in the introductory words of a letter to this effectual calling. I think it's important. And I think it's important to Paul. 
It's the same word again, kletos, used all over again. This is God's summons. So as initially God's summons from Paul's point of view in verse 1, by the will of God to be an apostle, now he calls it God's summons to be saints. You're the church, you're at Corinth, you're sanctified in Christ Jesus, and now you are summoned to be saints. You are drawn, you're being dragged toward this. It's more than just an external invitation. That's often how it's preached and how it's presented to us in the books that we like to read that are called Christian literature. It's almost like it's a great idea to try to be holy. And boy, you should really get after it. That's not how Paul presents it here. He's saying the the King of glory has summonsed you to come before His throne as holy. So you're demanded to be holy in your day-to-day living until that day comes that you stand before Him. Now, the calling is to be saints. Now, what is a saint? If we're not careful, we only ever understand a saint as a good Christian person who's now dead. And maybe even someone that the Roman Catholic Church has said, well, they are a saint. And we're supposed to say, okay, well, if you say so. Well, this is not a saint biblically. A saint biblically just means God's people. We are sacred, not because of our works or our own goodness. We're sacred because of the goodness of Christ that has made us God's people, thus we are saints. Calvin writes, We must therefore carefully maintain that it is not through our own efforts that we are holy, but by the call of God, because He alone sanctifies those who were by nature unclean. MacArthur makes a distinguishment here. He says, Not referring to a specially pious or revered person canonized by an ecclesiastical body, but by reference, but a reference to everyone who by salvation has been sanctified. That is, set apart from sin in Christ Jesus. If you've been set apart from sin in Christ Jesus, you are a saint. This for sure plays out here in this letter to the church in Corinth. Those in this church, those saved, were lacking greatly holiness in many areas. And Paul has to write and address this for them. But he still writes to them and says, you're the saints. He doesn't write and say, I'm wondering if you're saints at all. And so here's some measures we can get. No, he just starts right off and he says, you're the church. You're the sanctified. You're the ones called to be saints. He writes to them, addressing these issues, but not leaving off the encouragement of their positional sanctification as God's saints. R.C. Sproul says, Paul encourages them here in a pastoral way by reminding them that by God's grace they have already made a definitive break with sin and now serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Paul writes of this very thing that he's introducing here in this second verse. He says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. That's a great warning, but it's followed up with great confidence. And such were some of you, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This is the tone with which Paul writes his letter to the Corinthians. He's obviously having to deal with some stuff. There's obviously some horrible things going on in the church in Corinth because he has to address things like fornication, idolatry, adultery, the effeminate, abusers of themselves of mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. Boy, you wouldn't wouldn't think you'd find all those guys down at the church. Paul reminds them, this is what you once were, not how you should now be living. Next, we see that Paul tells them that they've not only been called to be saints and called to be sanctified, but he addresses the church here in a third qualification here. The sanctified, the saints, and then the church universal. That's how he ends verse 2. With all that in every place, call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. He's already addressed them as the church local, to you, the church in Corinth. Now he connects that local church, this ragtag bunch, these people from a pretty ungodly and very idolatrous city. He's got to deal with the, the thievery and the adultery and the fornicating and all of that later on. 
But he still, this bunch still gets hooked into this group of the church universal. They're a part of the bride of Christ. They're a part of the body. Now there's a doctrinal indicator for us here in Paul's wording. Initially, he addressed them as those effectually called. Now he shows the reciprocation of that on the human part. He says in verse 2, Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place, here the action switches. With all that in every place do what? Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. So initially it was those who are called. But now he says, all you who are called of God, who call yourselves upon the name of Jesus. And again, I'll quote Calvin, and this is the backside of the earlier quote. He said, it is by this duty chiefly that believers are to be estimated. You catch what's happening there? It's one thing to say, this is a group of people who've been called of God. But how could you ever prove that? How could you ever show that? Well, Paul says how he shows it here. He says, I'm talking to you, the church of God. Those of you who gather at Corinth. Those of you who've been sanctified. But can you see your sanctification? Those of you who are saints. Well, do we wear a sign that says, I'm a saint? Okay, well, all of you who in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now that's the distinguisher from the human point of view. From the godly point of view, yes. It's those of you called to be saints. Yes, those of you who've been sanctified. But from the human point of view, it's those of you in lieu of those things now call Jesus Lord and call out to Him for help as Lord. Now that's a different Greek word that Paul uses here at the end of verse number 2. Verse 1, Paul called. That's one Greek word. Verse 2, called to be saints. That's the same Greek word. Now in verse number 2, all in every place that call themselves. There's a different Greek word being used there. It's epikaleo, which means to call on a deity for assistance or protection. So we see the difference just in those two Greek words. The first Greek word is basically somebody with more power than you summoning you to do something that you can't really refuse. But the second one is you on your part calling to the one with the more power to you for assistance or protection. Is you asking for help. Well, that puts me in mind of Romans 10. Romans 10, 12 says, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is over all, the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. So there Paul introduces this idea of the expectation on the human part to call out to the Lord. You read David. All throughout the Old Testament when we find David, he's always talking about crying out to the Lord, calling out to the Lord. Then in Romans 10, after verse 12 says that God is rich to all that call on Him, verse 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall what? Yeah. This is a great blessing. Yes, we're called to be saints. We are summoned by an almighty God. But then we get this idea that we are to call out for help and that He is rich toward us who will call out for help from Him. Hodge says, to call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord is to invoke His aid as Christ. I'm no banker. I don't have access to the funds at a bank. You can come to me tonight and say, man, I really got to have a big loan by tomorrow. Can you help me? Well, I can pray for you. I can give you the phone number of the guy I use, but he usually tells me no, but you could try him. I can't help you. For us to call on the name of Jesus Christ the Lord is not limited in that regard. We're invoking His aid. Not just someone in a book of literature. Christ. The Christ. God the Son with us. The one with the rights and the authority to establish these things on earth that He already has and that He will still. Paul says here, in every place. Both theirs and ours. And there's two ways of understanding that from verse number 2. I think the simplest way is to be saying either here or there. So he connects them with the church universal. He says, with all, you're called to be saints with all the other saints. Every place. Everywhere where they call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Where? Both theirs and ours. Let's get together after church and have coffee. Where do you want to have it? My house or yours? Theirs and ours. This is kind of the idea, I think. This could also be read, though, as 
attributing more the every place that call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as he is both theirs and our Lord there. So Jesus Christ is our Lord and he is their Lord as we are connected in the church universal. I think both are fine understandings there. But my take is that he is writing to the church in Corinth. But what he is writing here is universal, is helpful to the church universal. Here's, here's a letter to the church in Corinth, but we're still now, thousands of years later, reading it and it's helpful to the church in White Bluff. Well, I'll, I'll end with this. Warren Wiersbe says, what we are in Christ positionally ought to be what we practice in daily life, but often we fail. I don't think it's any accident that Paul begins his letter to Corinth in this way. Prior to the Roman destruction, this city was a most wicked place. The Greeks that lived there worshipped all sorts of man-made gods. And typically, this worship was laced with sexually perverse overtones. Their society and their culture was deplorable, even by a non-biblical standard. I mean, the worldly standard would have said, these people are kind of rough. If you, if you ported your boat there, when you got off, you'd say, you need to be careful here. You'll catch something. These kind of people are perversely gross. They're, they're odd. They're unique in their ways. So Paul reminds these people early on, saved from that. He says, you've been called to holy living. You've been sanctified. You've got to remain dedicated on this path because the society you live in is going to tug at you not to be faithful to this holiness that God has put you in. So I would just say to us now, we also live in a very deplorable time. It's a, it, it, it never ceases to amaze me the things that come across the news as shocking to the world in which we live in. People are shocked that they're not allowed to do this. It's shocking to me that they would even want to publicly ever let anybody know they were doing that. We live in a very deplorable world, but we are still called to be saints, called to live holy as those who've been sinned. But just to mix it in with this sermon here, this idea of being called to be saints, Paul ends that thought with this idea that this calling is by God. This was all from God and Jesus. And God has produced in those he has called grace and peace. Grace is God's unmerited favor on a person. If you've been called, you've experienced God's grace. Peace is the result of that calling in your life. Those who have received God's grace have inherited His peace. So that's Paul's greeting as he begins this letter. All right.